I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. We are in week seven of a 16-month series. So you are on the front end. You can come back for the rest later. Uh, encourage you to find Exodus chapter 6. Starting on page 48. And uh, hear these words. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The Lord spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from, the, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you as with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let, my pe let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall the Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanash, Palul, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jamul, Jamin, Obed, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the, the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Koath, Merai, the, son, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shemai, and their clans. The son of Kohath, Amram, Izahar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merai, Malai, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Aram took, for his, took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Aram, Aram 137 years. The sons of Izar, Koath, Napheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elizapham, and Zithari. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba. Her, the daughter of 
Aminadab, and the daughter of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, and Eleazar, and Ithmahar, the sons of Korath, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisha, that one, and the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as a wife one of the daughters of Putael, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh the king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. On the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is the word of the Lord. So last week we talked about how faithful followers need to take the long view. If you were with us, we talked about how Moses took his first steps in embracing God's calling on his life. Exodus 5 showed us that even Moses, when he had this burning bush experience, it was this amazing calling. God spoke from a burning bush that was not being consumed. And he had this amazing experience. And even though the people of Israel, when they first came to him, responded very favorably, they believed and they worshipped his early days of doing what God had told him to do did not go very well. Pharaoh was dismissive, and on top of that, he was punitive. And when things became difficult, the people of Israel became angry with Moses and Aaron, and their fearful rage sounded something like this. Verse 21 of chapter 5. The Lord look on you and judge, because you made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. They were ticked off. Look at what you've done. You've made a stink before their eyes. And that led Moses to some very, very honest words. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, He has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is going, are you serious, God? You sent me to do this. You gave me these words. You gave me these actions to do. Serious? Nothing good has come from that. They're ticked. Pharaoh has done this, and they are crying out, you have done nothing to deliver these people. And I'm sure some of you can relate to Moses' feelings. In fact, a number of people have talked to me and just said how much you could just resonate with Moses. I get it. It, It's hard to take the long view of things in life. It's much easier to wonder, God, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you doing? So today we're going to take a final step in this section of our study of Moses called The God Who Hears. And we're going to be taking a next step next week in a whole new section. But in this, in this final text in our mini-series in, with Exodus 6, it's a text that has a great 
message. But a very strange flow. A very strange flow. If you look at the entire chapter in one glance, you're going to see that it contains God answering Moses' complaint, followed by this, this strange genealogy that none of you really would ever want to read for your devotions. Then, a summary. I think part of the reason this chapter is in here is because it's a prelude to the Ten Commandments and God's amazing deliverance of the children of Israel that's coming in chapters 7 through 12. And Moses is setting the context for us to understand how bad the situation really was. I can only imagine that as Moses looked back on this section of his life, this piece on his life, he could see more clearly that while he knew he had to take the long view of ministry, there was really something deeply significant happening in the hearts of these people as well as in the heart of Moses, which was preventing them from hearing, now you shall see what the Lord shall do. It was preventing them from hearing that with hopeful and enthusiastic hearts. Even when they heard more messages from Moses about the promises of God, they struggled. And some of you can probably relate. Perhaps you heard the message last week and thought, yeah, Paula, I know that I need to take the long-term view. And I really want to take the, the, the long view of life and ministry, claiming God's promises, but dot, dot, dot. And I want to help you out. Because I've been there, Moses was there, and the children of Israel were also there. Last Sunday I said that Faithful followers take the long view. And this Sunday, I want to add one more piece to that phrase that will help us understand how to take the long-term view. But that's going to come towards the end. Moses is setting us up for one of the greatest deliverances in the Old Testament. But before it comes, he highlights how bad things really were. This text mingles people, promises, and pain. People, promises, and pain. And I want to show you what needs to be added to the long-term philosophy of taking the long view. And I'm going to start off with the most difficult, verses 14 through 27. Because this is the passage of Scripture that you would be tempted to just skip right over. Uzihel? Koath? Why in the world would, would I, in my devotional life, read through these verses 14 through 27? Yet there's some important things to notice here. You need to know that the insertion of this genealogy at this point of the story may seem really strange to you and I with Western eyes, but for a person in the ancient Near East, this would not be, have been out of place at all. We tend to think of genealogies as the credits at the end of a movie. I know there are very few of you who sit through the whole movie to watch the credits. How many honestly sit through the whole thing to the very end? Every time. You're weird. It's a rare thing, you know. Oh, look, this guy is a gaffer. Whatever a gaffer is, you know. Or what about... 
um, all those credits of that guy and his monotone voice in those prescription medication commercials and tells you all these terrible things if you take that pill. But we sit through it just to get through it. It's a tedious recitation of information that you just tolerate. But this genealogy, like all genealogies, communicates some important, critical information. Think about Matthew's gospel. That first chapter is nothing but a genealogy. Why? Because it traces the line of Christ through David to Abraham. A clear message that Jesus is the promised king. So what are these messages communicating? What message is being communicated in this genealogy? Well, Douglas Stewart, in his commentary, points out a few things. First, it begins with Reuben, Reuben and Simeon, Jacob's first and second-born sons, therefore linking the family history of Moses and Aaron back to the very beginnings of the nation of Israel. It's, it's doing a, a look back and just saying, okay, Moses and Aaron, they are connected all the way back to the beginning, even though they're descendants of Levi. This list ends with Aaron's grandson, bringing the genera, uh, genealogy into the time of the Judges, the book of the Judges, therefore linking future generations into the story. So it goes past, but it also goes forward. It highlights the true priesthood of Aaron, which is something, it's a major theme in this book. It also gives some background, background to Korah and his rebellion, which, where he claimed equal authority with Moses and Aaron. And you're going to, I'm looking forward to that one, story of the ground opening up, swallowing their entire family and their possessions and the ground closing back up. Man, film that you will have a big hit. And it also shows the reader that Moses was from a priestly family, which is absolutely critical because Moses is going to be the one mediating between God and his people. And as you can see, the, the genealogy is more than just a list of names. It is a validation of Moses and Aaron's credentials. It serves to provide as a say, see, God wrote this story. You can't, you can't uh, contradict this. God is up to something. Verses 26 and 27 carry that very tone. Listen to it. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom God said. These ones are. Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing the people of Egypt Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. It's a pointing back saying, these guys are legitimate. So genealogies serve many purposes, but it, here it is serving to highlight the personal nature of God's work. God is working out his plan through the lives of people, especially Moses and Aaron. God is working out his plan through the lives of people. Why do I make this point? Because it shows us that following God's leading and challenges connected to this are deeply personal. Every name has a story. And that's true here too. Every name 
these three girls up into the front, this whole row here, yeah, busted. <laughs> Every name here has a story. And if you are part of God's plan, your name is important. God's plan is just not a, a theoretical plan. It involves real people. And when those plans become difficult, people's lives become difficult. So let's turn our attention to verses 1 through 8. First is people. A mingling of people, promises, and pain. People are important. And when you follow God's plan, it gets messy sometimes. There's challenges. But verse 1 through 8, don't forget that Moses has already voiced his frustration with God, saying, listen, you have not delivered your people at all. You have not delivered your people at all. Do you hear the finger pointing? You ever get that from your kids or your co-workers? You have not done your job? This is Moses saying that. And notice how God responds to him, how unbelievably God-centered God's answer is here. Listen, and I, and I don't think I have to read the whole thing, but verses 1 through 8 is amazingly God-centered. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. God spoke these words, spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them, myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give the land uh, of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel with whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will deliver you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, for you know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Did you hear anything in there? A huge emphasis on the word I, I, I. It is a God-centered story. I counted 18 times that this translation uses the word I. It's pretty clear, isn't it? God is changing the conversation that Moses was having, having with him. Moses said, you have not done your job. And God is going, hold on, boy. I'm changing the conversation and focusing Moses away from the circumstances of his life to the promises of God, which are rooted in the very character of God. In other words, the hope in this situation is the fact that God is still the one making and keeping these promises. It's nothing about you, Moses. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do about me. And because he is God, this kind of talk should be very encouraging for us. But I'm sure if you had a conversation with a friend, a family member, where in one minute of time they used their name or that reference to themselves in the third person 18 times, you would be going, all right, narcissism, is going over the top. 
enough about yourself. You are sick. You are unhealthy. You think the world about yourself. And we would, instead of getting help from them, we would want to get help for them, right? Get, get over yourself. There's nothing good about you that I would trust in you. You are self-centered. I, 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 done. But when God does this kind of stuff, we need to be supremely comforted. When the promises of God are rooted in God's ability to be God, it should give you hope. Look at the comfort of this truth in, in Hebrews 6, 13 through 18, and, and its connection to hope and patience. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is a final confirmation. When we swear in, in the courthouse, we put our hand on a Bible. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God, right? It's a final, we, we swear by something higher than ourselves. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable purpose, character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath. He made a promise so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. When God makes promises, God can only swear on himself because there's none higher. And it's a confirmation. God's saying, I cannot lie. I'm the supreme being of the entire universe and when i make promises they will stand period the promises of god are hopeful because they are rooted in who god is but i also want you to notice the beauty of what god promises here this is an amazing list of past present and future promises Notice the, the, these two highlights. First in verse 1, God is the one who is going to take action against Pharaoh and deliver his people. That, that's my promise. I am going to do this action. This is really about God. A promise given to Moses about what is really going to happen. Secondly, the present promises are a continuation of what God promised in the past. That's why we make these baptismal vows because there is something that God promises for you and to your children and to your children's children. Abraham had his child what? Circumcised, right? Because there were certain covenantal promises that were made to children. And in the same way, baptism takes a place because these promises are still for our children and our children's children. So we say, God, it's a continuation of these promises that you will be faithful. You will continue to be faithful. You see in verse 5 that God is very aware of pain. And he has not forgotten about his promise. He knows, he has seen, he has heard. 
That's the kind of God that we have. And these promises were given as a reassurance to Moses that God, God's promises would really happen. Period. Then God gave Moses, Moses promises that he had to take to the children of Israel. Verse 6. God is going to completely deliver them. And that for you and me should be reassuring that God will completely deliver us. No more Egyptian burdens, no more slavery, and no more delayed judgment. God is going to change their lives, their position, and their injustice. God is going to do this. Verse 7, God affirms His ownership and His love for His people. You will be My people and I will be your God. It's a promise. Verse 8, and they have a glorious future in front of them. He is going to fulfill His promise to Abraham and bring them to their own land. And then God seals the deal with yet another statement at the very end of verse 8. I am the Lord. It's kind of like an exclamation mark at the very end with a double underlined and all in bold and capital letters. I am the Lord. That seals the deal. It's an amazing list. In the midst of these dark and gloomy circumstances, God re reaffirms who He is and the promises He's made. He establishes these promises by the virtue that He is God. And on top of that, He links the promises to the historical covenant promise. He goes back and says, this is what I, I promise. This is what I'm going to continue to do. And he tells them then about their future. And he reminds them of his love for them. And he guarantees it on the very essence of his being. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Just wait and see. These, these promises are amazing. They're sweeping and they're powerful. And this should be encouraging and hopeful to the people of God. But you've got to see what happens here. This is where the rubber meets the road for many of us. Moses delivers this great news about God's promises rooted in his character to the people of Israel. Did you see their response in verse 9? Moses thus spoke, to, spoke thus to the people of Israel. And they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There's something new and very important going on here. We knew about the harsh slavery before this, right? We knew things weren't going on. We knew of 400 years of being in bondage. We knew about the brick but no straw punishment from Pharaoh. But this text says that they did not listen to Moses because something else had been added to their slavery. And what was added to their slavery? A broken spirit. The Hebrew word here is significant and it is absolutely loaded with meaning. The NIV, the New International Version, renders it as discouragement. The NASB uses the word despondency. And the King James uses the, the phrase anguish of spirit. 
Now, if you think back on a time in your life where you had tremendous faith in God and, and only to see it just go poorly, you know that that word, why there's so many words to describe that one word. The reason is because there is such a swirl of painful emotions that you feel about that situation or those particular people. Discouragement, despondency, anguish of spirit, a broken spirit all capture a deep personal pain that comes from being spiritually disappointed with God's providence. Remember I I said at the beginning of the message that I wanted to add something to what I said last week. Well, here it is. The meaning of this Hebrew word for a broken spirit is shortness. And it comes from another Hebrew word which means to be short in an emotional sense. So the idea is impatient, unable to hear something or to just be limited. To have a broken spirit means that you take a short view of life. And it looks like this. Maybe you saw some spiritual truth and you attempted to live it out with a, with a right heart, but it blows up in your face. Perhaps it was a, a person who acted in a very non-Christian manner, or maybe it was a church situation that's absolute, absolutely toxic, or maybe it was a God-honoring situation in which you've prayed for for years and years, and it just isn't happening. It gets painful. And it affects your viewpoint. It can affect whatever happens to your soul when you hear the promises of God. And even when the promises of God are are sweeping, are beautiful, magnificent, and glorious, you feel burned out. And you, you feel burned out on the promises of God. Are you serious, God? You're saying this? Look at my situation. You want to have faith. You want to believe. But the reality is you have a broken spirit. You want to believe in God's promises. But you know that sometimes, a lot of times, it just doesn't work out. Maybe you thought you found your soulmate and and marriage was going to be in the picture and everything explodes. Now you have a broken spirit. Or you did find that that spouse, and you promise to be in it for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, only to be talked down to, belittled, and you find yourself absolutely alone. You have a broken spirit. You know what it's like to lose a job, so any rumor in the office makes you really, really fearful. You have a broken spirit. You have prayed for a baby for years. And every 28 days, you fight for joy. You have a broken spirit. Your spouse cheated on you. And the smallest thing makes you afraid. You have a broken spirit. You have prayed and prayed and prayed for a wayward child to come back home, to come to Jesus. And it's not happening. And it's been so long. You have a broken spirit. And life is hard, and it's no wonder you have a broken spirit at at times, right? 
go, serious God? Again? And again? And again? It's no wonder that Israel had a broken spirit. 400 years of slavery. These promises come out and things only get worse. God makes these promises. They believed. They worshipped. And then it gets ugly. And to believe again for them and for us, to really believe again in God's promises would require us and them to risk being disappointed again. And who could blame them? It doesn't seem to me that this is the text as a judgment against Israel. It's a statement of fact. They were broken. And Moses is right along with his people. He has a broken spirit in verses 10 through 12. God said, Go and tell him. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And what happens? Pharaoh said, Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel would not listen to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Really, God? The circumstances of a painful life tempt us to take a short view. And it manifests itself in a broken spirit, a heart that is scared to believe in the promises of God again. Again for today. You, you know you should believe, but your, your broken spirit makes it really hard, really risky, really deeply personal. To believe again? Oh, this is scary. And even though God is continually proving Himself faithful in other areas of your life, He may be blessing other areas of your life, there are some topics, some issues, some scenarios where it is really hard to believe in the promises of God in this area. Everything is hunky-dory, but this area, to believe God with this? I'm not sure. You know you need to take the long view, but dot, dot, dot. And that leads us to the final point and the addition that I want to make for this week. Do you know what's even more challenging than taking the long view? It's taking the long view when you have a broken spirit. This is, this is our last theme, and you can throw it up for me. Faithful followers of God take the long view of believing while broken. Believing God while you are absolutely at your worst spot, you trust in Him. They take the long view by choosing every day to believe. Look at verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Israel, to bring the people of Israel out of the land. God gave them a charge. Even while the people were filled with absolute doubt, they were broken, full of, of a broken spirit, God still charged them. And the deciding factor, the de deciding point here was going to be whether or not God could be trusted even if it turned out differently than what they thought. 
Do I still trust God when it turns out differently than I had hoped? Do I still trust God even though the timetable looks very different? Do I still trust God in the midst of my pain? This reminds me of the story of Daniel and his three friends who refused to bow their knee to the king's idol. And they faced the death penalty. Listen to Daniel 3 about what they had to say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not. Those are amazing words. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. Those are amazing words. But if not, but if not, in effect they're saying, regardless of what happens, we are trusting God. Even as we stand here before the, the mouth of this fiery furnace and the, the soldiers who are going to throw us in are going to be consumed by the fire, in the midst of that, even if God does not save us, we are going to trust in Him and we will not worship this other God. Or to put in the context of our message, even though I have a broken spirit, even if I'm absolutely broken, I'm going to trust you. Followers of God take the long view by believing, believing in Him, even in their brokenness. So I'm going to give you some, some handles on this issue of because I know that I've gone through this. I'm sure many of you, I know your stories, you've gone through some of these things. So I'm going to give you three short phrases of how to believe when broken. Here's the first one. Look back. Throughout the Bible, taking the long view means that we look back and we rehearse the works of God. The Old Testament is filled with examples even at me, me talking about with the kids this morning about setting up that pile of stones what was the purpose of that it wasn't just a landmark on family vacation it was a storytelling time remember god's promise he brought us through the the river jordan brought us to the other side this is what this is about we're rehearsing god's promises right here but the greatest event that we need to look back on and rehearse and remember is the cross by, by looking back, we, we see the unbelievable way in which God kept His promise to redeem His people. By looking back, we see the extent to which God will go to keep His word. By looking at the cross, we can know that if God kept His promise then, He will surely keep it now. When Paul was talking about hard things that were happening, he used this very same language in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things that are happening? If God is for us, who can be against us? What should we say about these things? Well, I don't know, but if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That is why receiving Christ 
is the starting point. Inviting Christ to be your Lord is the first time of a million times. The first time of a million times that you believe in the promises of God while being broken. The first time you receive Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you go, yes! Everything crashes in. It becomes brilliant and you understand. But tomorrow happens. Or 15 minutes later happens. And you've got to say, yes! I'm receiving you again. Not for salvation purposes, but I'm receiving you and your promises. You are good. 15 minutes later, it hits the fan again. Tomorrow happens. Your husband happens. Your wife happens. Your children happen. You're good. But your children happen. Your job happens. The world happens. And you again trust in Him. And when you find yourself broken in different ways, hear this. Don't be surprised. This is what Christianity is all about. Number two. Look through. First one was look back. This one is look through. Painful circumstances and just wicked and messed up people can create a level of cynicism in us. Is that true for anyone in here? You're dealing with messed up, screwed up people and immediately your heart becomes cynical. Seriously? You? Again? It makes us cynical as shocking situations or appalling behavior just makes us absolutely jaded. Jaded about them, jaded about the church, jaded about God's work. We just become jaded. And I'm not sure. No, I am sure. Many of you do know what I'm talking about. You, you've become jaded. You've become burned really bad in a situation. And it's affected your view of the church. It's affected your view of people in general. And it, it's affected your view of God. In Israel's case, Pharaoh's actions were causing them to doubt God's promises. And the essence of their challenge was to look through Pharaoh and believe the promises of God. And some of you have allowed earthly people and earthly circumstances to cloud your vision of God. You need to look through them. Providentially, this week, Psalm 143 came across my devotional life. I would encourage you, 523, page 523, look it up real quick like. And read with me. Read along with me. The first ten verses. Because this is a great comfort, was a great comfort to my soul, and it's, it fits perfectly with what we're talking about here. Listen to David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no... No one living is righteous before you. You understand what he's doing? I, I don't deserve this. No one is righteous. Then he goes on to say, For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in the darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. See what he's doing? He's looking back. 
I remember the days of old. I meditate upon all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. For in you I trust. I love it. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. David is saying, look at everything. I'm rehearsing, I'm meditating on all these things, but God, I'm resting on you. I'm looking through this circumstance that you will bring me through. You have to look through the pain. And the last one is, look up. I think some of you need to pray Psalm 143 today. You need to make a conscious decision to choose to trust today by talking to God and tell Him that you want to believe. Maybe you need to have that simple prayer like the father whose sick daughter was found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 who said, I believe. I believe. But what does he need? Help my unbelief. God, I believe you, but help my unbelief. There's still that compartment in my heart and soul. I know you're true. I know you're faithful. I know your promises. I've been meditating. I've been rehearsing. I've been looking back. I'm trying to look through. But right now, God, I am looking up to you and I need you to help my unbelief right now. Help me out. You believe when you're broken by telling God, by faith, I believe. When your flesh is failing at you and you're saying, the heck with him. I'm cynical, I'm angry, I'm ticked off, and I'm writing them off. In those moments, you need to tell the Lord, by faith, I believe. Even though you and God still know that you need help believing. You come to Him with your brokenness. And you do not allow the pain of the past to prevent you from believing His promises again. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me? It means that you come to church in faith. You sing in faith. You read the Bible in faith. You risk trusting Him again, even though you've been burned. You trust again. It means that as you read the story of Exodus, you see Israel's struggles and you also see yourself. It means that you know that the mingling of people and promises and pain will only lead to brokenness, but you refuse to stay in your unbelief. I refuse to stay here. It means that you believe while you are broken. And I know some of your situations. Broken. And some of you have put on your beautiful Sunday best, your best faces. 
inside, you are absolutely broken. And you need to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm trusting in you. I need the long-term view again. And I need to believe in the midst of pain. So Lord, help me. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we know that you do hear our prayer and you, that you, your ears are always listening for our pleas for ministry. We know that you do answer us in your righteousness and in your own time. You never hide your face from us. You hear us. Lord, I pray that this morning for my brothers and sisters, that no matter what valley they are going through, what pain they are experiencing, what disappointment they have in people, in situations, in relationships, whatever it is, Lord, that they can cling to you. They can look back at at your promises and rehearse those promises. Lord, that they can look through them and see you, that you are always faithful. And Lord, that they can look up and say, Lord, it's to you that I pray. It's to you that I depend. So Lord, help us today. May these words dig down deep. May they be rooted in our, our frustrations, our pain, our questions. And Lord, may they give us strength as we trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.